Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. It's another Thursday morning, and I'm really uh, excited and grateful for my guests this morning. Uh, Michael Jillian and I have known each other for a really long time, and even longer than that, uh, a couple of our family members have known each other as well. So um, I'm excited to have him. He's very experienced on a subject called active shooting, which is a hot topic today and something we all need to hear about. So uh, I just want to say that uh, Mike is kind of unusual in the private investigator community. He is a licensed private investigator in California. Um, and that he is a second-generation private investigator. So, hi, Mike. How are you? Good, Francie. How are you? I'm great. So, talk a little bit about uh, uh, how you became a private investigator, because it's a different story than most people have. Sure. Well, I it's, it is different. A lot of PIs come out of law enforcement <clears throat> after a career in law enforcement. I actually grew up in the business. My father, who was in uh, the military and then law enforcement, started the company in 1967. So uh, I was literally born into it, and I was <laughs> I was sitting, you know, playing with my toys on the floor of his office when I was a little kid. So I've been around it my whole entire life, and it's as far as investigations and security is really the only thing I've ever done my whole life. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating because there's probably only a couple of three of you in the entire nation that is that can claim that. Uh, it's kind of cool. Thanks. And, and you took over the business, National Business Investigations, um, gosh, about, what, 20 years ago? Yeah, 1997, my father unfortunately passed uh, rather suddenly. He was only 57 years old. And, uh, you know, I had been a, a, a technical guy. I'd been an investigator and security guy since my whole life, and I didn't know really anything about business. I didn't take business classes in college, and he didn't sit down and say, this is how you run a business, because nobody ever thought that he would have uh, gone away so quickly. So when he passed, I was suddenly thrust into, I either need to learn how to run a business real quick, or it was going to fall apart. So I've spent the last 21 years really kind of focusing more on running a business than um, working in the business. And I'm very grateful that I we, we've achieved that and grown quite a bit, and we're a national company and have uh, have expanded quite a bit. Well, and it's interesting, um, Mike, since you haven't had uh, background in law enforcement, that you took on this uh, this project of learning about how to how to curtail an active shooter. That's, so that's fascinating to me because that is also out of the realm of what usually happens. Yeah. Well, that, you know, that comes from my security experience. I've done, I've been to multiple um, academies and classes and gotten certifications in uh, security and executive protection. And so on the security side, I don't, you know, a lot of people, when I say I teach active shooter survival training, they go, oh, wow. So you go out and teach people how to shoot guns. My (laughs) training 
is nothing like that at all. It is for the average person that does not have law enforcement or military uh, background to respond and survive an active shooter event if they're in their office, if they're at church, if they're at the grocery store, uh, if they're at a school. So, mm-hmm. it, it you know, the law enforcement elephant element really doesn't come into it. It's, it's just the average citizen uh, preparing for an event like that and then responding once an event like that actually takes place. Well, and, and as, as we know, it happens frequently enough in a lot of different venues that we really do need to be prepared. Preparedness makes a, a huge difference, doesn't it? Oh, most definitely. And, and in my book, I talk about uh, the preparedness being part of a security mindset. So the you know, security mindset is something that you have prior to an event. It's, it's uh, how to avoid being in a situation like that, how to prepare for it if it does happen. So uh, preparedness is huge. A perfect example of that, <clears throat> excuse me, is after the October 1st, um, 2017 uh, Route 91 Country Music Festival shooting in Las Vegas, Nevada, mm-hmm. everybody asked me, what, what do you do when something like that happens? And honestly, as soon as it happened, I thought, what do you do? You're surrounded by 22,000 people, chest to back, shoulder to shoulder. You can't move. Uh, you don't know where the, where the shots are coming from. What do you do? And it, it was kind of a helpless feeling because there's not a lot you can do. You don't have a lot of control at that point. You've got people mm-hmm. you can't move. You can either drop to the ground or try and move with the crowd, but that's not going to happen very quickly. So I thought really the best thing to do would be with a security mindset, be prepared for something like that prior to, and then you would have options using a survival mindset when the, when the activity started. So now I tell people in situations like that, even though we pay extra money to, to get up close to the stage front and center, it's probably, the, the, it's probably a very vulnerable spot because you can't do much. Mm. So you would stay near, a, stay near an exit or get near a, a pillar or something where you could take cover if shots did ring out. Interesting. Those, those are really good tips. So uh, let's back up a second because I want to talk about your certifications. Um, so uh, I have a whole list of them. Do you want to run down them? You want me to run down them? <laughs> Uh, well, let's see if you've got the same list I've got. So why don't okay. you go ahead and I'll fill in the gap. <laughs> All right. So um, you're a Certified Professional Protection Specialist, PPS, a Certified Professional Investigator, cert- uh, CPI, um, one of less than 50 Certified Security Professionals, CSP, in California. You have anything else beside that? Oh, gosh. Let's see. I'm trying to pull up my list now. Yeah, uh, I've got actually several things. Um, I've got uh, cert- um, I've got certificates in um, active shooter survival training from another school. Uh, where actually, I went to a school to become an active shooter survival trainer, and that's when I got the idea to pr- create my own program because I saw some deficits in theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got uh, I'm cert- I've got a certification in be- behavioral threat assessment, uh, behavioral threat assessment of an active shooter. Uh, let's see. Gosh, um, I'm, I'm licensed in several states for security and investigations. Um, I guess that's it. You're, and you're a graduate of the Executive Security International uh, Executive Protection Institute? Yeah, I, I did the Academy for uh, uh, Executive Protection Institute for uh, Executive Protection. Then I took continuing education classes through Executive Security International on protective surveillance um, uh, covert protection, surveillance detection, 
uh, several yeah. different things. So I've, I've really tried to, I, I know, well, I don't know what I don't know, and I'm sure that that's quite <laughs> a bit. So I'm continuously trying to stay up to date on uh, what's best for my clients and what makes me a better instructor. So I'm, I'm all about continuing education. And since you mentioned instructor, I let me just put out there, um, for those of you that are listening, Mike gives a great presentation on this very topic. Um, he has a book that uh, we just mentioned, but we didn't say the name, called 10 Minutes to Live, Surviving Active Shooter Using Alive, which is an acronym, A-L-I-B-E. So, um, and Mike, you can get this book on Amazon. You can get it on Amazon or through the website, which is ActiveShooterSurvivalTraining.com. Perfect. Okay. So, um, and, and I, Mike and I also know each other through the California Association of Licensed Investigators, where we've both been press presidents and members forever. <laughs> Probably yeah. most of your life, I think, huh, Mike? <laughs> Yeah, Seems like. yeah. I've been involved in in Cali for probably twenty five years, and I'm on the board of the World Association of Detectives and National Association of Security and, and Investigative Specialists. So, uh, you yeah. and I are both involved very deeply in the national and state, national and international private investigation community. Some, sometimes to our detriment, but there you go. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. So, um, okay. So let's let's talk about preparedness. I mean, you gave a couple of tips, and I, I think the thing that grabbed me right at the beginning of your book, Mike, is that it won't happen to me. And I think that is a, an American mindset. I mean, you hear that all the time, no matter what the disaster is, whether it's fires or earthquakes or active shooting or whatever, um, I can't imagine that it was going to happen to me. So how do you overcome that? Yeah, the first chapter in the book is it won't happen to me because, you know, I talk a lot about mindset, not only our mindset as potential victims, but, but the killer's mindset. As far as our mindset goes, as long as we have this denial, this belief that it won't happen to me, we're never going to be prepared. Uh, and so many people in America, especially, <clears throat> who are not constantly in war-torn areas and losing family members and, you know, seeing bad things happen like some of the countries uh, around the world, we just, uh, we're in denial. We don't want to believe it. And, you know, we're, we're such a society of convenience mm-hmm. and instant gratification. Uh, we don't want to think about it. We've got these, these rose-colored glasses on, and, and that, is a, that is a terrible mindset to have because if we're, if we're, if we're if we believe it's not going to happen, we're never going to be thinking and imagining it does, so we'll never truly be prepared. And we're certainly not going to go out and get training because we think, why bother? Why spend the money or why take the time when it's never going to happen to us? But we have found out in so many situations, um, be it schools, malls, churches, it doesn't really matter. It can happen anywhere. People congregate and people have a desire to hurt other people, which can be anywhere in this country or around the world. Well, and we've had a couple of incidents just in the last couple of weeks, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, I do it just, know. Uh, it, it's it, pretty amazing. It, and it's getting worse, Francie. It's getting a lot worse. In my presentation, I show statistics, both from the FBI and Secret Service, that uh, numbers, not only of incidences since 2000, really, really 1999 is when we started tracking this, 
as a phenomena that we mm-hmm. need to understand since, since uh, Columbine shooting. But uh, every year it's gotten worse, not just in number of incidences, but body count. The body count's going up. And, and a lot of these people, unfortunately, are sitting around thinking, how can I get a higher body count than the last guys? Right, right. It's sad. It's really sad. So, um, Mike, what does the acronym ALIVE stand for? Alive is assess, leave, impede, violence, and expose. And I, you know, I took the first version of everything is usually somewhat flawed because it's the first version. And it's basically the guy, guys like me take the run, hide, fight that Homeland Security came out with, which is a great foundation to build on. Uh, and we just kind of improved it a little bit, um, you know, filled in some of the gaps. So assess mm-hmm. is basically taking the five seconds it takes to take a deep breath, and say to yourself, you know, what is happening right now? What is it? An active killer? Is it? You know, is it a backfire from a from a car? It's trying to assess the situation instead of reacting. And and I'm talking about reacting emotionally because oftentimes, and mm. <laughs> uh, the, mm-hmm. the example I use is is in a relationship. If a man and woman are uh, about to have an argument and somebody says something and the other person reacts emotionally, usually it goes downhill from there. But if they take their time and take a deep breath and they react uh, reasonably and rationally, things can improve. And in an active shooter situation, the last thing you want to do is just become hysterical and take off running because you might run mm-hmm. right into this, this situation. So the first step is really about taking a breath and saying, what is happening? What is my next step? Um, right. Leave, leave is obviously get out as quickly as possible, as far away as you can. Um, calling 911 immediately, and I, and I talk about the importance of time because the sooner uh, law enforcement arrives, the sooner the shooter is going to either divert his attention or kill himself, which happens in more than 50% of these incidences. Mm-hmm. So leaving is very important. Um, the I is obviously for impede, and that is creating time and space so the shooter can't get to you because... Why I said 10 minutes to live is most of the highest body count active shooter incidences lasted 10 minutes or less. Most of them actually last five minutes or less. So if Uh you're focused on, hey, I can last another seven minutes, I'm going to be fine. So uh, it's about creating time and space. And then uh, the V is for violence. If you've got no other choice but to ad- but to actually confront and engage the attacker, then you have you commit 100% of yourself to to um, taking this person down. And I even talk very strongly about the fact is your mindset is I'm going to kill this person, and obviously I don't want to kill anybody, and I don't want anyone else to kill anybody. But you've got to commit 100% to eliminating this person as a threat. And mm-hmm. the last one, of course, is. Um, um, is exposed, and that is expose your position carefully because you don't know if there's more shooters out there, and you don't also you don't want to run around a corner with a cell phone in your hand and, and scare law enforcement because they're not going to know if you're a good guy, good guy or a bad guy. So you expose your position very very carefully at the end. Those are really uh, it's, that's really good. It uh, looks I mean it's clearly that you put a lot of thought into um, putting that together so it was meaningful, and you know. Mike, you mentioned um, school shootings, starting with Columbine. There's been a lot of rhetoric uh, recently, it seems like, that um, the number of school shootings um, are fake news, for example. And and I did some research. I had to write a paper a couple years ago on school shootings. And I went back and investigated some of those. And they're not fake news. They're, from what no. I understand, from what I look at, they're since Sandy Hook, for example, there's been over 200, and I think 
and now it's and it's increased even since I did my research. So, what yeah. do you what do you say about I, that? Okay, so the 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 interpretation of it being fake news is, I guess, it's subjective. That that two hundred number is school shootings in any way, shape, or form. And that could be a student going out and uh, committing suicide with a gun in their car. So there are a couple of organizations out there, and they're, they're kind of left-leaning, meaning you know, kind of anti-gun. And they will, they will oftentimes uh, kind of box these things into the school active shooter, where actually, by definition, they would not... They would not fit that definition. They're, they're still very unfortunate events. There's still, um, you know, someone dying with the use of a, of a gun. So, so it, it fits into the gun violence uh, category. Mm, but I see. Active, yeah, active shooter or active killer uh, events are, uh, they're, they're, they're very specific. And as far as Homeland Security, the FBI, and the Secret Service, the definition is essentially anyone who kills or intends to kill three or more people in a confined area where people congregate. And so those, those three factors kind of have to be met uh, for that to actually qualify as an active shooter event. I see. Oh, that, that's a good definition. That's- and by the way, let me just make this point on the gun topic. You know, I in my presentation and my book, I use the terms active killer and active shooter interchangeably because not all active killings are done with guns. In fact, uh, there are more active killings in the rest of the world with with uh, other things like edged weapons than there are active shootings in America. So the, the point of that is my program uh, will apply whether it's a, a gun or a samurai sword or a knife. Uh, so that's why I use those terms interchangeably. The, the, the program still can work to survive whether the person's got a gun or not. Oh, good. Okay, that's good. That's uh, that's. We'll talk about that. So we're going to take a really quick break. We need to let people know about who our uh, supporters are. We'll be right back with Michael Julian. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie 
on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to F R A N C I E at PIsDeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm here with Michael Julian. Uh, he's the author of 10 Minutes to Live. Survive, about surviving an active shooter incident, and this is such an important topic. So we want to talk about um, who the active shooter is. What what kind of profile does he have? So Michael, let's talk about that. Sure. Um, well, unfortunately for us, because it's hard to actually spot the potential active shooter. Uh, we have found, especially through a, a new study that was finally published by the Secret Service just a couple of months ago, there are very few similarities that we can box these people into so that they're easy to spot. It's not like if somebody has a certain tick, we go, okay, that person fits that profile and we can keep an eye on them. The one thing we do know about them is uh, 98% of them are male, but they're anywhere from 13 to 70 years old, so it can be anyone you know. Uh, Now, there's three main reasons uh, or motives that that, that cause people to be an active shooter or active killer. Uh, Anger and revenge is one. So if someone is terminated from their job, uh, they've got conflict with somebody and they feel wronged, uh, they're upset with them, they, they may target specific people, for instance, in workplace violence situation or domestic violence situation. They may target certain people initially, but then they will uh, kill additional people as well to inflict more uh, harm and damage. The second type is uh, mentally ill or somebody with a personality or emotional disorder and you know, when I first started doing my research on this, I thought there's no way that any sane person would ever go out and do something like this. Mm. And I have found um, through these studies that have been published that only up to about 25% of active killers have some sort of um, uh, identifiable mental illness. Uh, Cho is a good example who was a paranoid schizophrenic, uh, and he was the uh, Virginia, Virginia Tech shooter, and he's... He, mm up until Las Vegas had the highest body count in America. Um, So uh, mental illness, and and then, you know, when I say personality or emotional disorder, they don't necessarily have a mental illness that is uh, treatable with uh, anti-psychotic drugs, but they've got a complex. A good example of that is uh, Elliot Roger in Santa Barbara. He felt marginalized by women. Um, his father was a producer in Hollywood who apparently you know, wasn't proud of him or didn't treat him in a certain way uh, from, what I've, from what I've been told. So he always felt marginalized. He had this inferiority complex, which... which Interestingly enough, he showed uh, in videos that he made prior to his, um, his attacks as though he spoke about himself as being the supreme male, the alpha male. Um, hmm. 
but you know, women didn't find him attractive, and the jocks at, at uh, UCSB apparently were uh, marginalized him and didn't treat him well. So he he had an emotional disorder, but it was not necessarily a mental illness. And then the third one is ideological, and that that's violent acts intended to create population fear, like terror. A good example is extreme uh, um, the extreme Muslim ISIS group who who kill people. Uh, to create terror, uh, mm-hmm. also politically driven, um, religious, racial, that sort of thing, um, sexual orientation. Uh, anybody who intends to do this because they don't agree with the ideology or or the way somebody else thinks. So those are the three oh. the, the three main drivers in this. Okay, and let's go back to Elliot Rogers. He was the student at Santa Barbara University of Santa Barbara that his parents Correct. had actually called tried to get. Uh, somebody to go out and talk to him, and the police did talk to him, and yep. didn't see anything wrong. And so, yeah, I mean, the there's police, he had he had law enforcement contact on two different occasions, and you know, it's not Cho also was contacted by law enforcement on two different occasions because uh, his roommate called him and said that he'd threatened to kill him, but. Because of the culture that we have, and, and this is very similar to the way domestic violence used to be, you know, law enforcement would go out to a domestic violence call, and, you know, by that time, maybe the woman had said, never mind, I don't want to press charges, or mm. or the cops would go, oh, well, there's not a lot we can do because it's mutual contact, you both hit each other, just settle down and don't do it again. But then they would leave, and three days later, the woman would end up dead from, from the man, um, you know, abusing her so badly. So, so now law enforcement enforcement has the teeth to actually do something. And now if there's a domestic violence call, somebody's going to jail. They're not going to leave those two people alone together mm-hmm. because of all these incidents that have happened. And yeah. this is now becoming a part of our awareness. So law enforcement will, will have teeth. They'll have the authority to actually yank somebody and take them in for a 72 hour watch or evaluation or something uh, to prevent it. Because so many times this is now happening where law enforcement responds and the, the psychopath or sociopath says, oh, no, that's fine, and that, the person's lying, and I didn't ever say anything like that, and they leave, and a few days later, there's a mass killing. So mm-hmm. that is going to definitely change. Well, and, and I think you, you made a really good point about the um, political uh, ideology ideological issues when somebody feels really strongly about something somehow I guess they convince themselves that the way they solve the problem is eradicating whosoever they think is causing the problem yeah and a perfect example of how twisted that is is the person that goes in and shoots up an abortion clinic there the, the person's ideological uh, mindset is anti-death so they're against killing but they go in to represent mm. their belief system by killing other people so it doesn't make a lot of sense but it, it and it doesn't mean they're mentally ill it's just that their belief system is so strong that they are acting emotionally and and trying to change it in a in a very horrific way that's an interesting perspective i hadn't thought about it in that way before um i mean i think i've been with the uh, the majority of people that think you can't conduct a mass shooting unless you're mentally ill, you know? Uh, so that's an interesting perspective. Yeah. Well, I was part of that, that group. I mean, I've known people, I had a family member that was mentally ill, and I, I saw what it can do to somebody and the way they think. And so I thought, well, how could any sane person, you and I would mm. never consider doing that? But <clears throat> like in my presentation, I talk about, um, you know, people can be pushed to the edge and when they finally get pushed over the edge they have predisposed ways of of conducting themselves you and i might 
hit the edge and go over, but would never think about killing other people. Mm-hmm. There are people uh, who, especially like the younger people in, in colleges and high schools, they feel marginalized, they're put down, um, they're embarrassed and humiliated, and they're going to take it out on the masses, maybe the specific people that did it, but then they're going to also indirectly, they believe everyone else around them is responsible by allowing this sort of behavior. Um, So it's kind of a way of getting back. Now, I talk about, uh, well, three things. Uh, the, The goal of an active shooter is to kill as many people possible in a short amount of time as possible because they know their, their time is limited. Mm -hmm. One thing they do not fear is death. One thing they do, the thing they do fear the most is failure because in, in, in carrying out this event, they are trying to get the control and the power back in their lives that they feel has been stripped from them by, say, an ex-wife who took their kids away, an employer or supervisor who marginalized and humiliated them and treated them mm-hmm. poorly at work, uh, kids at school who treated them poorly. They want to get that power and, and that control back that they blame other people for taking them. And in doing so, and why the, 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 the book title, 10 Minutes to Live, is so important, because most, many of these people, over 50% I have found, will typically kill themselves rather than be taken into custody or killed by someone else because they, are, they feel so gratified by finally having that power back, by scaring everybody with a gun and being on top instead of below them, that they will take their own life to maintain that power rather than give that power back to someone by taking them into custody, custody or killing them. Mm-hmm. So, 10 minutes is, you know, that the mindset is if I can last 10 minutes, I'm going to live because this person, as long as law enforcement and many of these people I, I cite in the book, many of these people, as soon as they hear the sirens coming, they will take their own lives. So that's why it's so important to get law enforcement rolling as quickly as possible. Well, I, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, yeah, you really sparked something, my thinking that it's about control and power. That is, um, it feels like it's right on the target. Because yeah. uh, even even to the point of them taking their own lives, is they're taking control. Yep. Yeah. So, and many of them, uh, yeah. You know, many of them, they leave journals and videos of themselves to to perpetuate that control, and and they love the news media going over and over and over and over and over about every little part of their life, including what they had mm-hmm. breakfast that morning, because it perpetuates the power and control they have, um, even even from the grave. Interesting. Well, you know, I'm looking at your book here, and and you've you've defined the active shooters by age, uh, for example, and and I noticed that the largest amount is the 20 to 29 year olds, which are 16, the absolutely the most of of any age category, and I it just sparks that that seems to be, and and what you've already said is. They're typically males. I don't know of any female active shooters at the moment. Um, they're t- typically males. And that is also the age that they've been looking at in the past 10 years as the developing male brain is impulsive and risk-taking and all of the things that seem to plug into that mindset of, I need to take control of my life. Um, you know, people are against me and uh, I need to do something about it. Yeah. And that impulse. Yeah, that's. That's definitely a time when the, that brain is very impressionable, obviously not from an adolescent standpoint, but as a relatively younger adult. I mean, that's, 
you know, ISIS goes after that, that age group as well because that's when they're usually searching for something to believe in. They haven't quite started. Uh, they haven't established themselves in many situations. Uh, there's still, you know, a lot of insecurity left over. So that's when they're most impressionable in that way. And that's when they're also the weakest, I believe, um, in that they haven't gotten the confidence. And if they are, if, if they are feeling marginalized, if they are put down, um, that's when they, they're not, they're, they're too immature to understand and cope with it. Their coping skills are obviously aren't that, aren't that good. They're not mature enough to rationalize it and go, okay, this is not something that's going to continue or I'm just going to change it. So they, uh-huh. they act out that way. Uh-huh. Interesting. And, and you have statistics in here. Um, you wrote this book, um, was it last year or the year before? It was, pu- it was published January of this year. The, January of this year, okay. Um, we're talking hot off the press here. <laughs> so you have uh, 40 incidents in 26 states, 20 in 2014 and 20 in 2015. You know, that's, uh, that's almost two a month. Yeah, and, and those are the ones, <clears throat> getting back to your earlier point, those are the ones that, that fit the FBI's um, definition. There are many that are just a little bit on the outskirts that still could very well fit into the active killer definition. Um, so, and, and by the way, you know, I get Google alerts set up. So I, every time there's an, an active shooter, active killer incident, uh, I get a notification. And believe it or not, there are more than what hit the mainstream media. So there are, there are incidences where somebody shows up and intends to, to be a successful active killer, but let's say they shoot two people but then are taken down by security or a citizen or law enforcement, and you go, most of us don't even know about it because it doesn't hit the mainstream stream media. Right, right. That's, and yeah, and that's also a- the media... The media is just in love with with hating guns. So any active shooter situation that involves guns uh, may get that attention. But there are active killer incidences that guns are not involved in that they don't necessarily think they'll get the same mileage out of, so they ignore. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot we don't hear about, that's for sure. So what kind of practical exercises are you recommending? We have about four minutes till we take another break, but um, what kinds of things would you recommend? If somebody can't attend your, your seminar, what can they do themselves to, to practice being alert? Well, not, I don't mean to push the book, but everything in my seminar is in the book <laughs> times 10. So, so okay. it's honestly a survival manual. I would definitely recommend the book would have a lot of different stuff in it. But just for the sake of this conversation, um, being uh, situationally aware, just being aware of your surroundings. And I do a, a, an imagination exercise in my classes, and I tell everybody, you know, close your eyes. Now, picture yourself where you spend the most time. If you're in an office or a cubicle, Picture yourself there. Now picture the door. Now picture the stairwell and the reception area. And imagine somebody coming through with a gun and starting to shoot. What would you do? And I call that being proactively reactionary, which is a little bit of a a funny term. I made it up. But uh, to me, it means creating the reaction that you would you would enact or engage in prior to the event. So if you imagine somebody coming through the, the reception area with a gun, 
What are you going to do? Do you have a weapon you can use? Can you shut and lock the door, turn the lights off, and pretend you're not there? Can you get out? Uh, if, you have to, if you have to fight, what are you going to do, and how are you going to best set up to do that? And, and you know, essentially, that is basically, uh, it's imagining a scenario before it happens so you can create a plan that you can apply. And if you've already got that plan, you're already one step ahead in case it ever does happen. Most people that don't know what to do or don't have training are now stuck in a position where they're trying to figure out what to do. If they've already thought about it, now they know what to do and they can save time in actually doing it. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I'm just thinking of schools. Schools could do so much in that, uh, in that arena by preparing students and teachers to do something whatever it is, uh, in, in their own particular school, depending on the, how it's configured. Yeah, and they're definitely getting, they're, they're getting on track with that. You know, they have lockdown drills. Um, they have different things. I teach to a lot of private schools. A lot of the public schools don't have the budget, and they'll have the law enforcement agencies come in and do it. Um, but I teach to a lot, of, uh, a lot of teachers at private schools so that they know what to do. And you're going to start seeing drills every three months like we see fire drills. Because in Uh the 60 years since fire drills have become mandated by the federal government, we've not lost a single child to a school fire. So we will will start seeing all schools conducting active shooter drills regularly. Interesting. That's that's great. Uh, Because I'm I'm just thinking of the, uh, was a Parkland shooting where the the kids... they were they were trying to hide, but you could see through the window in the door where they were. So yep. you know yep. that didn't that didn't solve the problem, <laughs> even though they were more prepared than most of us. Yeah, in a school shooting, if there's any vulnerability whatsoever, and we found this this out in Columbine when a lot of the kids did what we've all been taught, and that's hide under your desk, but mm-hmm. they could be seen very easily. So they were actually shot and killed doing what they were taught to do. When right. many of these children, when many of the kids just kept running. They ran and they ran out the door and they, they, they lived because they got out of there. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay, we're going to take another break, Mike. We'll be right back. You bet. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-350. C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie. 
Nancy on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to F R A N C I E at PIsDeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm here with Michael Julian, like private investigator from California. and some other states, I believe, and uh, we're just talking about uh, how to protect yourself from an active shooter. Offline, we were just saying there's a section in his book that he memorializes the victims in, in many of the active shooter cases, and I was just thinking, Mike, as, as uh, the commercial was on here as we were coming back, that, uh, you know, I would say that we quickly forget these cases, you know, these situations. Uh, I'm... How many of us could remember the faces of, say, the even the Parkland shooting, which is recent, or this, yeah. uh, or the Stonewall um, school? How many of us could remember Marjorie those faces? Stoneman. Well, yeah, yeah, Marjorie Stoneman, or even Sandy Hook. Even though we remember they were small children, we don't remember mm. their faces. We don't remember their names. So as soon as it's over, within weeks, we've forgotten about it and gone on to the next. And the fact that you have memorialized them in this book, I think, is fabulous because it does honor the victims. And as you said, uh, you didn't uh, have photographs of the shooters, so that's great. And we probably spent too much time talking about the shooters. (laughs) Yeah, well, the the sad thing is uh, the press, uh, you know, the media, so they've got a story, you know, they consistently show the pictures of the killer and so a lot of people in my presentation as soon as I show um, I start talking about the killers they know their faces Uh, but they don't remember the important people and that's the victims and I refuse to perpetuate the you know the 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 image of these people because a lot of them want that notoriety after they're dead or after they're caught Um, so instead I decided to honor the victims so I did uh, I put in photographs of many of the the biggest um, mass killing incidents as victims, and then also usually a photograph of the memorial because the memorials are very, very important for people to remember. Very much so. Very much so. And, and you've, you've listed some of the more significant cases as well in a, a little summary viewpoint. So um, one of the chapters in your book, you talk about working as a team. Talk to me about that a little bit. Well, you know, these, these killers are not heroes, they're not warriors, uh, they're not crusaders, they're cowards, they're bullies. And uh, they, they are operating on this bubble of courage that they've created because now they've got the gun or the knife or the sword or whatever, and they've got fear from everyone else. And uh, one person, uh, you know, 
against another person, usually that's equal odds. If the, if the bad guy's got a gun, the odds are against them. But two people against someone, even with a gun, either equals it out or can even be a, a, you know, a greater advantage. So mm-hmm. I talk about operating as a team. And the reason it's so important and the, the point I make when, the comp- when companies hire me to come in and teach their, their employees or staff is now that everybody has got the same training. It's like a football team or any kind of organized sports team. When a football team, there's 11 guys on the field, that they, they go down in, on the line and they go down and get ready. Uh, they all know what the other player is going to be doing so they can do their job and not worry about the other guy doing their job. If you operate, mm-hmm. if you train and operate as a team, you're going to be so much more effective in taking down a killer because uh, for instance, if there's two people standing by a door when a killer comes in, the first person to make contact, I teach, is the one to control the weapon, the trajectory of the weapon. Uh, so the second person then jumps on or attacks the person. That is the kind of team training and team uh, engagement that will be much more effective than just two or three people standing there trying to figure out what to do and not knowing what the other person's going to do. So mm-hmm. operating a team and doing what I call swarming um, Literally, everybody kind of jumps on the person once the gun is is controlled is so necessary and so much so important for effectively engaging and taking down a killer. And isn't that what happened in the nightclub in Orlando? Isn't that how they didn't they take him down like that? No, at Pulse law enforcement actually took him down. He was he went in and killed several people um, and then went in and and he. That guy, that one lasted longer, um, and actually law enforcement came in and got into a gun battle with him. Mm. But there have been situations uh, when somebody was taken down that way. Um, Unfortunately, not as many as there should. And, you know, Francie, honestly, it boggles my mind. The first question I ask everybody at, at the beginning of any of my classes is, who here has had active shooter survival training? Mm-hmm. And maybe... Every other, I'll get one or two people of 40 or 50 people. Yeah. That has got to change because so many situations where, where swarming, where actually acting as a team would have eliminated the, the, the threat and saved people's lives, they just didn't know to do it. And they didn't have the confidence to do it because they weren't mm-hmm. taught a survival mindset. You know, James Holmes, when he went into the Aurora Theater in Colorado, uh, mm-hmm. the midnight showing of Batman, he walked in and the first group of people he saw that were closest to him, he made eye contact with them. And immediately it changed for him. He looked at them. He saw their faces. He looked into their eyes and they were human beings. They were not objects of his, of his anger and frustration. So instead of killing the people closest to him, the easiest targets, he turned away and started shooting into the middle of the group in the theater. Well, those people that were right there, after he turned away from them and realized he's not going to shoot us, he's shooting other people, if they had this training, they would have known they could have jumped on top of him and saved him. several people's lives. But they didn't know that they were they were they were frozen in fear or maybe they took off running if they understood that once he decided to turn and shoot in another direction that was their opportunity to take this Mm. guy out and they ultimately would have saved many people's lives but they just didn't know it you know that's such a good point and it it goes back to we're all in denial it's not going to happen to us it's not going to happen where we are it's a, you know, we, we do that. It doesn't matter whether it's uh, loss prevention and preventing theft or an active shooter. I mean, it's as simple as that. We're, we're in 
invincible. You know, it's not going to happen to us. So um, that's that's why I'm so glad you're giving these classes and you put this book out here because this reaches a lot of people that wouldn't otherwise get the information. So working as a team, that's a, um, a scary thought. You know, it's a scary thought to to jump an active shooter, but uh, you know. Well, they they put us in a position where scary or not, we've got no choice if we want to survive. Uh, and and if we're close enough, you know, part of what I talk about is opportunity. And and I don't tell anybody to be a hero. I don't say, hey, it's your job to take this person out. That's a personal decision they've got to make. It's also one mm-hmm. they've got to live with. So I don't want to be responsible for them telling them they need to do this or they don't need to do it. But if if they now have the confidence because they've got the training and they realize, hey, I do know that I can that I'm that I can do this, they're more likely to act in an aggressive way to to stop that person than be frozen by fear, paralyzed, or take off running. But sometimes taking off running is the best thing to do. And I teach people, you know, you need to save yourself. Um, you know, in an airplane, where they say, if we ever lose oxygen, the oxygen masks are going to come down. And if you're sitting next to a child, put it on yourself first, so then you can, and then put it on the child. And that, mm-hmm. that is because self-preservation, you're no good to anyone if you're passed out. You can't help anybody. But if you save yourself, you then can help other people. So, you know, it all comes down to a personal decision, whether you're going to, whether you're going to, you're going to leave, you're going to, you're going to hunker down and, or you're going to fight this person. And, um, another thing I say is there's no guns out there that have unlimited bullets, like in video games. So if you are in that situation and you have no, you have no other option, but to fight, uh, then this person's going to run out of ammunition soon. And as soon as that happens, there's your opportunity. Well, speaking you know, but of video like I said, games, Francie, it, it comes down, it comes down to survival, to to a security and survival mindset, and and the the mindset of survival has got to include the fact that you know you can survive this and you must survive it to get home to the people you love instead of being frozen in fear. And I show videos of active shooter events where people literally just stand there when Mm. there's somebody with a gun shooting in their direction instead of doing anything else because they're paralyzed by their own fear. And that is the last thing you want to do. Do anything, but don't do nothing. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and speaking of video games, Mike, um, do you think the uh, sh- shooting type video games contribute to this? I, I think you know because of the age group we talked about, and be, you know, young people being very impressionable. I, as somebody who used to play active shooter games with my son and online, who thought, well, I would never do this. I'm kind of changing my mind. And there's a there's an icon in my industry, a guy named Lieutenant Colonel uh, Dave Grossman. And he goes around the world talking about this. He came out with a book called Assassination Generation. And he specifically talks about the fact that our young people are becoming uh, immune and... and um, desensitized to this sort of mm-hmm. thing because of the movies they watch and the video games they play. And I, mm-hmm. I'm starting to believe that that may actually be the case uh, because somebody with a weaker mind, and certainly the two boys in uh, Columbine uh, were definitely affected by that sort of thing. So I think, yeah, I think it is a factor. And I, unfortunately, I doubt we're going to change it. Um, right. But we need, to, we need to teach our kids 
to be aware of the impact this stuff can have on them so they realize it is just a game. And by the way, you don't have unlimited lives. You don't just hit reset and you start the game over. Once mm-hmm. you're dead or someone else is dead, that's it. And they need to understand that. Yeah, for sure. So so let me ask you, Mike, you're, you're going about your daily you know, your daily living. Uh, I know you have kids. I know, you know, you have family members. So you're, you're with your family at some event. What's your mindset? Tell me if, if something happened right then, you've got your family members there, maybe there's a couple of little kids. What do you do? Uh, well, that's two, <clears throat> excuse me, two different things. First of all, I, a good example, I, my girlfriend and her family and I went to a Luke Bryan concert in Utah when we were there to watch her, her sister play uh, college volleyball. And when we got there, I said, okay, guys, now listen, uh, let's take note of all the, uh, the perimeter exits and entrances, the venue entrances. Uh, let's, let's find a rally point in case something happens. And, you know, so I found myself explaining this and creating a plan, and I, and I thought, do these people think I'm crazy? And then I realized, well, <laughs> hopefully they, they know what I do for a living, so hopefully they won't think that. But I think everybody's got to be situationally aware, and they need to prepare. And with a security mindset, you, if you go to a venue, if you take your family to church every Sunday, I believe it's important to say, okay, family, um, we're going to sit over here by the entrance or in the middle or up towards the front, strategically placed in case there's a situation. And if it does, you guys do this. Kids, get under the pew or under the bench. You know, we're going to do this. We're going to do that because you have to have – there's multiple scenarios. There's no broad brush swipe to say if there's an active shooter, you do this because you never know mm-hmm. where they're going to be coming from, if they've got a, a gun, a knife, a long gun, a short gun, whatever. But I think in scenarios like that, where you're going to be at the same place every Sunday, or you're going to be in school every day or work every day, you create those scenarios. You go over, go over them with your, your family, uh, no matter how old they are, uh, because they need to understand what to do in case it happens. Now, you spoke about young children. That changes the dynamic dramatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, no parent, uh, no self-respecting parent is going to think only of themselves like I talked about earlier. Uh, their number one job is to protect those children. And so things change. And I've, I'm told all the time I need, to cha- I need to teach this class to young people. But, you know, young people are still, their minds are developing. They're, they're, uh, you don't know what they could do from one minute to the next. Uh, so, and, and I would never want to be responsible for saying to a bunch of, you know, third graders, if a guy walks in with a gun, attack him. That's just not mm-hmm. something I'm, right. I'm yet prepared to do. Yeah. But I think it's important to create a plan so you, if you are with your children, you, they know what to do, especially they know what to do in case you actually get hit and go down. What are they going to do now? And that's a hard conversation to have. And Trump said he doesn't believe that, that you know, kids in school should be given active shooter survival training because it'll scare them. And I think that kids should be given active shooter survival training because it'll scare them. I think they need to understand that reality is a scary thing, so be prepared for it because if it happens, and you're not, you're going to be, like I said, frozen by fear or wondering what to do. And that is not a good position to be in. Thank you, Mike. That, that is uh, words of wisdom that we need to absorb and, and implement in our lives. We need to close. We've got only 30 seconds left, and you thought you wouldn't have enough to say for an hour. So we're <laughs> <laughs> uh, reminder, the PPIAC, um, Private Investigators Conference in 
Colorado, Breckenridge, Colorado, is next week, September 13th to 15th. I will be speaking on the topic of interviewing witnesses and overcoming obstacles. Mike, thank you so much for sharing your expertise. It's so important for the safety of all of us. Thanks to my sponsors, PI Magazine and Jim Nanos and Nicole Cusinelli. And to you, my faithful listeners, thank you as well. See you at another time. It's PI's Deep Classified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 